Part One of Chapter One of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book the First, of the Rights of Persons, Chapter the First, of the Absolute Rights of Individuals. The objects of the Laws of England are so very numerous and extensive that, in order to consider them with any tolerable ease and perspicuity, it will be necessary to distribute them methodically, under proper and distinct heads, avoiding as much as possible divisions too large and comprehensive on the one hand, and too trifling and minute on the other, both of which are equally productive of confusion. Now, as municipal law is a rule of civil conduct, commanding what is right and prohibiting what is wrong, or, as Cicero, and after him our Bracton, has expressed it, sanctio justa, gibens honesta, et prohibens contraria, it follows that the primary and principal objects of the law are rights and wrongs. In the prosecution, therefore, of these commentaries, I shall follow this very simple and obvious division, and shall in the first place consider the rights that are commanded, and secondly the wrongs that are forbidden by the laws of England. Rights are, however, liable to another subdivision, being either first those which concern and are annexed to the persons of men, and are then called jura personarum, or the rights of persons, or they are, secondly, such as a man may acquire over external objects, or things unconnected with his person, which are styled iura reum, or the rights of things. Wrongs also are divisible into, first, private wrongs, which, being an infringement merely of particular rights, concern individuals only, and are called civil injuries, and secondly, public wrongs, which, being a breach of general and public rights, affect the whole community, and are called crimes and misdemeanors. The objects of the laws of England falling into this fourfold division, the present commentaries will therefore consist of the four following parts. 1 the rights of persons, with the means whereby such rights may be either acquired or lost. 2. The rights of things, with the means also of acquiring and losing them. 3. Private wrongs, or civil injuries, with the means of redressing them by law. 4. Public wrongs, or crimes and misdemeanors, with the means of prevention and punishment. We are now first to consider the rights of persons, with the means of acquiring and losing them. Now the rights of persons that are commanded to be observed by the municipal law are of two sorts. First, such as are due from every citizen, which are usually called civil duties, and secondly, such as belong to him, which is the more popular acceptation of rights, or iure. Both may indeed be comprised in this latter division, for, as all social duties are of a relative nature, at the same time that they are due from one man or set of men, they must also be due to another. But I apprehend it will be more clear and easy to consider many of them as duties required from, rather than as rights belonging to, particular persons. Thus, for instance, allegiance is usually, and therefore most easily, considered as the duty of the people, and protection as the duty of the magistrate. And yet they are, reciprocally, the rights as well as duties of each other. Allegiance is the right of the magistrate, and protection the right of the people. Persons also are divided by the law into either natural persons or artificial. 
Natural persons are such as the God of nature formed us. Artificial are such as created and devised by human laws for the purposes of society and government, which are called corporations, or bodies politic. The rights of persons considered in their natural capacities are also of two sorts, absolute and relative. Absolute, which are such as appertain and belong to particular men, merely as individuals or single persons. Relative, which are incident to them as members of society, and standing in various relations to each other. The first, that is, absolute rights, will be the subject of the present chapter. By the absolute rights of individuals we mean those which are so in their primary and strictest sense, such as would belong to their persons merely in a state of nature, and which every man is entitled to enjoy whether out of society or in it. But with regard to the absolute duties which man is bound to perform, considered as a mere individual, it is not to be expected that any human municipal laws should at all explain or enforce them. For the end and intent of such laws being only to regulate the behaviour of mankind as they are members of society and stand in various relations to each other, they have consequently no business or concern with any but social or relative duties. Let a man therefore be ever so abandoned in his principles, or vicious in his practice, provided he keeps his wickedness to himself and does not offend against the rules of public decency, he is out of the reach of human laws. But if he makes his vices public, though they be such as seem principally to affect himself, as drunkenness or the like, they then become, by the bad example they set, of pernicious effects to society, and therefore it is then the business of human laws to correct them. Here the circumstance of publication is what alters the nature of the case. Public sobriety is a relative duty, and therefore enjoined by our laws. Private sobriety is an absolute duty, which, whether it be performed or not, human tribunals can never know, and therefore they can never enforce it by any civil sanction. But, with respect to rights, the case is different. Human laws define and enforce as well those rights which belong to a man considered as an individual as those which belong to him considered as related to others. For the principal aim of society is to protect individuals in the enjoyment of those absolute rights which were vested in them by the immutable laws of nature, but which could not be preserved in peace without that mutual assistance and intercourse which is gained by the institution of friendly and social communities. Hence it follows that the first and primary end of human laws is to maintain and regulate these absolute rights of individuals. Such rights as are social and relative result from, and are posterior to, the formation of states and societies, so that to maintain and regulate these is clearly a subsequent consideration. And therefore the principal view of human laws is, or ought always to be, to explain, protect, and enforce such rights as are absolute, which in themselves are few and simple, and then such rights as are relative, which arising from a variety of connections will be far more numerous and more complicated. These will take up a greater space in any code of laws, and hence may appear to be more attended to, though in reality they are not, than the rights of the former kind. Let us therefore proceed to examine how far all laws ought and how far the laws of England actually do take notice of these absolute rights, and provide for their lasting security. The absolute rights of man, considered as a free agent, endowed with discernment to know good from evil, 
and with power of choosing those measures which appear to him to be most desirable, are usually summed up in one general appellation, and denominated the natural liberty of mankind. This natural liberty consists properly in a power of acting as one thinks fit, without any restraint or control, unless by the law of nature. Being a right inherent in us by birth, and one of the gifts of God to man at his creation, when he endued him with the faculty of free will. But every man, when he enters into society, gives up a part of his natural liberty, as the price of so valuable a purchase, and, in consideration of receiving the advantages of mutual commerce, obliges himself to conform to those laws which the community has thought proper to establish. And this species of legal obedience and conformity is infinitely more desirable than that wild and savage liberty which is sacrificed to obtain it. For no man that considers a moment would wish to retain the absolute and uncontrolled power of doing whatever he pleases, the consequence of which is that every other man would also have the same power, and then there would be no security to individuals in any of the enjoyments of life political therefore or civil liberty which is that of a member of society is no other than natural liberty so far restrained by human laws and no farther as is necessary and expedient for the general advantage of the public hence we may collect that a law which restrains a man from doing mischief to his fellow-citizens though it diminishes the natural increases the civil liberty of mankind but every wanton and causeless restraint of the will of the subject whether practised by a monarch, a nobility, or a popular assembly, is a degree of tyranny. Nay, that even laws themselves, whether made with or without our consent, if they regulate and constrain our conduct in matters of mere indifference, without any good end in view, are laws destructive of liberty. Whereas if any public advantage can arise from observing such precepts, the control of our private inclinations, in one or two particular points, will conduce to preserve our general freedom in others of more importance, by supporting that state of society which alone can secure our independence. Thus the statute of King Edward the Fourth, which forbade the fine gentlemen of those times, under the degree of a lord, to wear pikes upon their shoes or boots of more than two inches in length, was a law that savoured of oppression, because, however ridiculous the fashion then in use might appear, though restraining it by pecuniary penalties could serve no purpose of common utility. But the statute of King Charles the Second, which prescribes a thing seemingly as indifferent, that is, a dress for the dead, who are all ordered to be buried in woollen, is a law consistent with public liberty, for it encourages the staple trade, on which in great measure depends the universal good of the nation, so that laws, when prudently framed, are by no means subversive, but rather introductive of liberty. For, as Mr. Locke has well observed, where there is no law, there is no freedom. But then, on the other hand, that constitution or frame of government, that system of laws, is alone calculated to maintain civil liberty, which leaves the subject entire master of his own conduct, except in those points wherein the public good requires some direction or restraint. The idea and practice of this political or civil liberty flourish in their highest vigour in these kingdoms where it falls little short of perfection, and can only be lost or destroyed by the folly or demerits of its owner, the legislator and of course the laws of England being peculiarly adapted to the preservation of this inestimable blessing even in the meanest subject. 
very different from the modern constitutions of other states, on the continent of Europe, and from the genius of the imperial law, which in general are calculated to vest an arbitrary and despotic power of controlling the actions of the subject in the prince, or in a few grandees. And this spirit of liberty is so deeply implanted in our constitution, and rooted even in our very soil, that a slave or a negro, the moment he lands in England, falls under the protection of the laws, and with regard to all natural rights, becomes eo instanti, a free man. The absolute rights of every Englishman, which, taken in a political and extensive sense, are usually called their liberties, as they are founded on nature and reason, so they are coeval with our form of government, though subject at times to fluctuate and change, their establishment, excellent as it is, being still human. At some times we have seen them depressed by overbearing and tyrannical princes, at others so luxuriant as even to tend to anarchy, a worse state than tyranny itself, as any government is better than none at all. But the vigour of our free constitution has always delivered the nation from these embarrassments, and, as soon as the convulsions consequent on the struggle have been over, the balance of our rights and liberties has settled to its proper level, and their fundamental articles have been from time to time asserted in Parliament, as often as they were thought to be in danger. First, by the great charter of liberties, which was obtained, sword in hand, from King John, and afterwards, with some alterations, confirmed in Parliament by King Henry III, his son, which charter contained very few new grants, but, as Sir Edward Coke observes, was for the most part declaratory of the principal grounds of the fundamental laws of England, afterwards by the statute called Confirmatio Carterum, whereby the Great Charter is directed to be allowed as the common law. All judgments contrary to it are declared void. Copies of it are ordered to be sent to all cathedral churches, and read twice a year to the people." and sentence of excommunication is directed to be as constantly denounced against all those that by word, deed, or counsel act contrary thereto, or in any degree infringe it. Next, by a multitude of subsequent corroborating statutes, Sir Edward Coke, I think, reckons thirty-two, from the first Edward to Henry the Fourth. Then, after a long interval, by the petition of right, which was a parliamentary declaration of the liberties of the people, assented to by King Charles I in the beginning of his reign, which was closely followed by the still more ample concessions made by that unhappy prince to his parliament before the fatal rupture between them, and by the many salutary laws, particularly the Habeas Corpus Act, passed under Charles II. To these succeeded the Bill of Rights, or declaration delivered by the Lords and Commons to the Prince and Princess of Orange, 13 February 1688, and afterwards enacted in Parliament when they became king and queen, which declaration concludes in these remarkable words, quote, And they do claim, demand, and insist upon all and singular the premises as their undoubted rights and liberties. End quote. And the Act of Parliament itself recognizes quote, all and singular the rights and liberties asserted and claimed in the said declaration to be the true ancient and indubitable rights of the people of this kingdom. Lastly, these liberties were again asserted at the commencement of the present century in the Act of Settlement, 
whereby the crown is limited to his present majesty's illustrious house and some new provisions were added at the same fortunate era for a better securing our religion laws and liberties which the statute declares to be quote, the birthright of the people of england end quote, according to the ancient doctrine of the common law thus much for the declaration of our rights and liberties the rights themselves, thus defined by these several statutes, consist in a number of private immunities, which will appear, from what has been premised, to be indeed no other than either that residuum of natural liberty, which is not required by the laws of society to be sacrificed to public convenience, or else those civil privileges which society hath engaged to provide in lieu of the natural liberties so given up by individuals. These, therefore, were formerly either by inheritance or purchase, the rights of all mankind. But, in most other countries of the world being now more or less debased and destroyed, they at present may be said to remain, in a peculiar and emphatical manner, the rights of the people of England. And these may be reduced to three principal or primary articles, the right of personal security, the right of personal liberty, and the right of private property because as there is no other known method of compulsion or of abridging man's natural free will but by an infringement or diminution of one or other of these important rights the preservation of these inviolate may justly be said to include the preservation of our civil immunities in their largest and most extensive sense roman numeral one the right of personal security consists in a person's legal and uninterrupted enjoyment of his life, his limbs, his body, his health, and his reputation. 1. Life is the immediate gift of God, a right inherent by nature in every individual, and it begins, in contemplation of law, as soon as an infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. For if a woman is quick with child, and by a potion or otherwise killeth it in her womb, or if any one beat her whereby the child dieth in her body, and she is delivered of a dead child, this, though not murder, was by the ancient law homicide or manslaughter. But at present it is not looked upon in quite so atrocious a light, though it remains a very heinous misdemeanor. An infant in ventre sa mère, or in mother's womb, is supposed in law to be born for many purposes. It is capable of having a legacy, or a surrender of a copyhold estate made to it. It may have a guardian assigned to it, and it is enabled to have an estate limited to its use, and to take afterwards by such limitation, as if it were then actually born. And in this point the civil law agrees with ours. 2. A man's limbs, by which for the present we only understand those members which may be useful to him in fight, and the loss of which only amounts to mayhem by the common law, are also the gift of the wise creator, to enable man to protect himself from external injuries in a state of nature. To these, therefore, he has a natural inherent right, and they cannot be wantonly destroyed or disabled without a manifest breach of civil liberty. Both the life and limbs of a man are of such high value in the estimation of the law of England that it pardons even homicide if committed, say, defendendo, or in order to preserve them. For whatever is done by a man to save either life or member is looked upon as done upon the highest necessity and compulsion. Therefore, if a man through fear of death or mayhem is prevailed upon to execute a deed or do any other legal act, 
these though accompanied with all other the requisite solemnities are totally void in law if forced upon him by a well-grounded apprehension of losing his life or even his limbs in case of his non-compliance and the same is also a sufficient excuse for the commission of many misdemeanors as will appear in the fourth book the constraint a man is under in these circumstances is called in law duress from the latin duritius of which there are two sorts duress of imprisonment where a man actually loses his liberty of which we shall presently speak and duress per minas where the hardship is only threatened and impending which is that we are now discoursing of duress per minas is either for fear of loss of life or else for fear of mayhem or loss of limb and this fear must be upon sufficient reason none as bracton expresses it quote, suspicio cuius libet vani et meticulosi hominis sed talis qui possit cadere in virum constantem talis enem debet esemetus qui in se continiat vitae periculum aut corporis cruciatum a fear of battery or being beaten though never so well grounded is no duress neither is the fear of having one's house burned or one's goods taken away and destroyed because in these cases should the threat be performed a man may have satisfaction by recovering equivalent damages but no suitable atonement can be made for the loss of life or limb and the indulgence shewn to a man under this the principal sort of duress the fear of losing his life or limbs agrees also with that maxim of the civil law ignositor ei qui sanguinem sum qualiter qualiter redemptum voluit the law not only regards life and member and protects every man in the enjoyment of them but also furnishes him with everything necessary for their support for there is no man so indigent or wretched but he may demand a supply sufficient for all the necessities of life from the more opulent part of the community by means of the several statutes enacted for the relief of the poor of which in their proper places a humane provision yet though dictated by the principles of society this countenanced by the roman laws for the edicts of the emperor constantine commanding the public to maintain the children of those who were unable to provide for them in order to prevent the murder and exposure of infants an institution founded on the same principles as our foundling hospitals though comprised in the theodosian code were rejected in justinian's collection these rights of life and member can only be determined by the death of the person which is either a civil or natural death the civil death commences if any man be banished the realm by the process of the common law or enters into religion that is goes into a monastery and becomes there a monk professed in which cases he is absolutely dead in law and his next heir shall have his estate for such banished man is entirely cut off from society and such a monk upon his profession renounces solemnly all secular concerns and besides as the popish clergy claimed an exemption from the duties of civil life and the commands of the temporal magistrate the genius of the english law would not suffer those persons to enjoy the benefits of society who secluded themselves from it and refused to submit to its regulations footnote this was also a rule in the feudal law and footnote a monk is therefore accounted civiliter mortuus and when he enters into religion may like other dying men make his testament and executors 
or if he makes none, the ordinary may grant administration to his next of kin, as if he were actually dead intested. And such executors and administrators shall have the same power, and may bring the same actions for debts due to the religious, and are liable to the same actions for those due from him, as if he were naturally deceased. Nay, so far has this principle been carried, that when one was bound in a bond to an abbot and his successors, and afterwards made his executors, and professed himself a monk of the same abbey, and in process of time was himself made abbot thereof, here the law gave him, in the capacity of abbot, an action of debt against his own executors to recover the money due. In short, a monk or religious is so effectually dead in law, that a lease made even to a third person during the life, generally, of one who afterwards becomes a monk, determines by such his entry into religion. For which reason leases and other conveyances for life are usually made to have and to hold for the term of one's natural life. The natural life being, as was before observed, the immediate donation of the great Creator, cannot legally be disposed of or destroyed by any individual, neither by the person himself, nor by any other of his fellow-creatures, merely upon their own authority. Yet, nevertheless, it may, by the divine permission, be frequently forfeited for the breach of those laws of society which are enforced by the sanction of capital punishments, of the nature, restrictions, expedients, and legality of which we may hereafter more conveniently inquire in the concluding book of these commentaries. At present I shall only observe that whenever the constitution of a state vests in any man or body of men a power of destroying at pleasure without the direction of laws the lives or members of the subject, such constitution is in the highest degree tyrannical, and that whenever any laws direct such destruction for light and trivial causes, such laws are likewise tyrannical, though in an inferior degree because here the subject is aware of the danger he is exposed to, and may, by prudent caution, provide against it. The statute law of England does therefore very seldom, and the common law does never, inflict any punishment extending to life or limb, unless upon the highest necessity, and the constitution is an utter stranger to any arbitrary power of killing or maiming the subject without the express warrant of law. Nullus liber homo, says the great charter, quote, aliquo modo destruatur, nisi per legale judicium parium suorum aut per legem teri, end quote, which words, aliquo modo destruatur, according to Sir Edward Coke, include a prohibition not only of killing and maiming, but also of torturing, to which our laws are strangers, and of every oppression by colour of an illegal authority and it is enacted by the statute 5 Edward III, chapter 9, that no man shall be forejudged of life or limb, contrary to the great charter and the law of the land. And again, by statute 28 Edward III, chapter 3, that no man shall be put to death without being brought to answer by due process of law. 3. Besides those limbs and members that may be necessary to man in order to defend himself or annoy his enemy, the rest of his person or body is also entitled by the same natural right to security from the corporal insults of menaces, assaults, beating and wounding, though such insults amount not to destruction of life or member. 
4. The preservation of a man's health from such practices as may prejudice or annoy it. And 5. The security of his reputation or good name from the arts of detraction and slander are rights to which every man is entitled by reason and natural justice, since without these it is impossible to have the perfect enjoyment of any other advantage or right. But these three last articles, being of much less importance than those which have gone before, and those which are yet to come, it will suffice to have barely mentioned among the rights of persons, referring the more minute discussion of their several branches to those parts of our commentaries which treat of the infringement of these rights under the head of personal wrongs. End of Part 1 of Chapter 1 of The Absolute Rights of Individuals